Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high-regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all of the things that intersect between law, technology, and a highly regulated industry. Um, I am super excited about our guest today, uh, Gela Boskovic. Hello, Dara, darling. Did I say that right? Boskovic, but you know, nobody Boscovich. gets it right. But I got Gela right, yes? You totally got Gela right. All right, because there has been some bastardization of that name. Well, let's be honest, I've answered to a lot of different things, but I am not a gala. I'm not a party waiting to happen, as anybody who knows me can testify to. Um, Gala, gala, gila, most of the time I'm like, just don't even bother. Just, hey, you, works just fine too, but you got it right. Gala, that is actually how you say it. Gella. Perfect. I've okay. been a I've been a Dara, I've been a Sarah, I've been a Dora, I've been a lot of different things. But for Dara everyone Dara. listening, it's Dara. There like you go. Sarah, but with a D. See, this is what I was I was like Stella with, with a G. Just imagine um, Marlon Brando screaming that out. Stella. But with oh. a G. I, I love it. I love it. Um, so uh, Gella, not that anyone needs an introduction. Oh, However, <laughs> you're gonna make me do this. <laughs> well, I was gonna, I was gonna fangirl on you a little bit, all, all on my own. Okay. Um, so, in addition to being, you know, thought leader, fintech, regtech community advocate for women, founder of Fintech Global, I just think you're an all-around badass. Oh. Um, and have uh, enjoyed listening and uh, reading your work for years, quite frankly. Oh, thanks, um, And very much viewed you as a mentor, especially as I was entering um, kind of the fintech industry. Uh, and very delighted to now be able to call you a friend. So thank you so much for being on my first premiere episode of Tech on Reg. Oh, shut the front door. This is like number I know, one. it's a surprise. <gasps> you are going to be the first episode that oh, airs. Oh, no. Oh, the heavy weight on my shoulders of responsibility. <gasps> I can't blow this. I, I, I feel like that's a very low-risk proposition, Gella. Very low-risk. Again, as I've told you previously, wait till we're done before you <laughs> make, that, make that judgment. <laughs> That was cool. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really, really, really honored. Uh, absolutely. So our topic today, um, algorithmic bias in artificial intelligence, machine learning. I know there's lots of spirited debate about whether or not machine learning is actually artificial intelligence. I think it technically falls under. It does uh, technically that, fall under I think it. it technically falls under that category, but I know that, you know, w- educated minds can differ as to, uh, as to what that actually is. Um, but here, you know, I think that there's been a lot of, I think, intelligent discussion and debate around the fact that um, that maybe the bias in AI isn't so artificial. Actually, it's incredibly organic, and therein lies the rub, right? The risk happens because it is organic. It's not necessarily uh, maliciously or purposefully architected into it. It's a, it's root cause of... of 
human nature and our subjectivity around how we think certain data attributes or certain intelligence is important and sort of the assumptions that we have, this um, cognitive overload uh, trip that we, or this little tripwire in our brains that doesn't want, how, doesn't want to have cognitive overload, say we make assumptions about things, which is why, you know, stereotypes exist. Um, but it's a way of, of, of operating and navigating neural networks in our, own, in our own habits, in our own behavior. And we mirror that into what we're starting to code in terms of technology. And yeah, I don't think that artificial intelligence or the algorithmic bias is artificial. It's, it's organic. And maybe there's a, a, a syntax difference, and, but it matters. So maybe I think it would be valuable to maybe take a, a step back and unpack it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, because I think when most of us read or listen to uh, thought leadership about algorithmic bias in AI, um, I don't think enough time sometimes is taken to back up and say, okay, what exactly are we talking about? Yeah, what because, is it? Um, you know, I had the pleasure of listening to you speak earlier today uh, at, a, at an event held by Discover when we talked about um, process versus outcome. And I think with algorithmic bias and AI, everyone's very focused on the outcome, right? What exactly is happening and what are we learning? But in order to fix that, we've got to go back and now examine some process, process and how did, how did we get to this outcome that everyone is uh, maybe not so comfortable with. And when I say everyone, I mean women and minorities. <laughs> well, frankly, like I think anybody is at risk for algorithmic bias, right? So yeah, let's unpack it. Let's go back. First off, what is an algorithm? Right. It's simply a mathematical expression of assumptions. And assumptions are, again, how we start to process information in the real world, right? It's based on this cognitive overload principle that we want to avoid. And we're assuming that things based on anecdotal evidence or empirical evidence, this will be an assumption of the way people and things will behave. And we're mathematically monitoring or coding that and that's it. So that, that's an algorithm. It's just a, it's a mathematical assumption or it's an assumption in mathematical form. How that actually works, it has to churn a certain amount of input like any other equation in yep. order to get an output, right? And so that, that becomes the data component. So assumption and then the input that you actually put into that assumption to get either um, a, a next action or the next triggered step or a suggestion or advice or it triggers another, uh, another step in the process. And that's it. That's pretty high level, super simple, but Here's so we, where we start to get nuanced, though. So two separate but parallel problems, right? Absolutely. We've got the problem in the design of You've got a problem the in the assumption, and then you've got a problem in what you feed the assumption. So the data, right? Yes. And there are basically two camps of data. Let's be really generic, and I am not a data scientist, so if you want to go argue, I'm not the one to take to, to, to task on this. Well, Lucky for lucky for, for you and, and anyone listening, I am not a data scientist either. All right, um, so blind leading the blind. And in reality, I am actually blind and you were blind. So that is, that is true is, without correct decision. This, this is amazing. <laughs> this will be perfect. So, all right, we're, <laughs> we're doing everything wrong here, but here we go. So the data science behind it actually focuses on two types of categorization of data. One is structured, which has been curated. Someone has actually gone through and assigned it 
a level of importance. So whatever data we collect, we take the attributes. And, and most of us will have, have seen an Excel spreadsheet. And it's like fields in an Excel spreadsheet, right? So how do you structure it? How do you categorize it? How do you curate it? How do you define what is important? And that is really subjective. Because again, it goes back to I, as a human being, have decided that this particular attribute is important enough for us to consider. So I'm going to categorize it as a field, and I'm going to capture it, and I'm going to make sure it's labeled so that when I crunch it, it falls into an appropriate category, and there's context around it when we're interpreting the outcome. The other type is unstructured data, which most of us go, all right, great. So there's, it hasn't been curated. No one said this has a sliding scale of priority and we should examine it first, or this is not important, it's irrelevant, we won't actually track it, that's okay. We lump it all together. And the difference between the two is what is produced. Structured is really about answering questions that give us answers. So we query the data. There is a formal question that is asked of this curated data and we want an answer to it. So we're asking very specific things. Unstructured is left to tell us about the data itself. Pattern recognition that we're unable to see at scale, um, correlation, sometimes we get interesting potential causation out of it, but it tells its own story. So we make no assumptions around that data and what it's informing us. We're letting the data tell us what actually matters and what it should be interesting to us. So we get two very different outcomes. One is question answer, the other is here is something you didn't know or didn't notice and you need to start paying attention to. So very two kind of different purposes also with the data. Now, when it comes down to bias, structured data has a really high risk level of being biased because the human in the loop will have made assumptions about the importance of a particular attribute or feature of the data. And what types of humans are making those assumptions, Gala? Well, I can give you the I can give you the answer that it's it's predominantly going to be the current Oh, I can't even do this with PC. I can't do it straight out either. It's just like guys are making a lot of assumptions, right? Let's just be honest. The number of, of um, data scientists is predominantly male. Uh, those that are making the decisions. Those are, that's, and, and that's just the data, right? Like that's those, just data. And those are just the facts. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, so the, this, and, and, and the issues involve, uh, that, you know, we've all talked about ad nauseum about, yeah. you know, the level of diversity um, in the technology field, uh, let alone, you know, financial services, law enforcement, and all of these other organizations yeah, so that are that are developing things for their own use. And again, but here's, that's just, that's just that's, what it is. That's what it is. But here's the thing. I don't, I don't discount anyone actually designing for themselves, right? Sure. That has, it has value, but it has extraordinarily limited value and it has contextual value. Problem is, is we're trying to do this at scale and we're still using models and assumptions and uh, subjective subjective valuation of what is important to a particular experience for a particular type of person. And it's pretty much exclusionary to a lot of people. So if you are, let's say typically, okay, if you're white and if you're male and you're middle-aged, most products are going to be designed for you because that is the group that has 
the power right now or there's there are more of them doing this sort of thing. So it's weighted, right? Well, what's really interesting is I was reading recently about some facial recognition software that's increasingly being used for law enforcement purposes. Um, and in February 2018, there was a researcher at MIT that found that three of the latest um, sort of gender recognition AIs, I think one of them was from IBM, Microsoft, uh, and a Chinese company called MegV, uh, could correctly identify a person's gender from a photograph 99% of the time, but only for white men. Mm -hmm. And for dark-skinned women, accuracy actually dropped to just 35%. Yeah. Well, here's the funny thing. So I work with an identity company. And when we were looking at algorithm uh, training data sets for, for the algorithm, uh, what we were challenged in is finding enough copyright-free images of people of color irrespective of gender and that we're talking about you know every color under the sun except for white and it was one of the biggest challenges we had the data training set that we finally scraped together was about 44,000 images but I will tell you it went it weren't easy and some of it was pretty shady in terms of trying to get it because I know there were some copyright violations among the data set even though that we were not held liable for it, but I have to tell you this, it was damned hard to get it. And the fact that we did it, did get it, was massive cause for celebration because we need to be able to recognize any type of face, any type of skin color, any type of shape of anything. Right, but that fact in and of itself, the, av the availability of the data. This um, is what I'm like saying. The, the stock, I mean, so we can, we can get me off on a tangent about, you know, stock imagery and what Google images um, return, is, returns but, to you when yeah. you Google certain phrases. Um, but, you know, I'm an attorney. So for me, I think about issues like that and I say, okay, if that is, if these are the types of uh, tools that law enforcement is going to be using, what does that do? It obviously increases the risk of false identification for women, for oh, it's minorities. False, it's like an increase of false positives across the board, right? The thing is it's discriminatory inherently. From the get-go, it's a priori yep. discriminatory. And that actually is a massive, massive problem when you're talking about um, retribution and you're talking about li liability distribution for wrongful outcome, right? Massive problem. And this is one of the things that we have to recognize it's a systemic problem, right? There's no there's no silver bullet in terms of here's let's do a massive data dump of new images that are freely available that we can start using sure. to train. But this is part of pointing out the systemic problem. And absolutely, when you're talking about the legality of it, it ain't ethical, it ain't right, and somebody's got some massive exposure on one side because this is a systemic well, problem. So I the work done uh, by the researcher at MIT was so important that as soon as it as it came out, you can imagine IBM very quickly announced that it would be retraining its system on a new data set. Microsoft came out and said that it was going to take steps to improve accuracy because, um, you know, uh, those two brands I don't think want to be associated with uh, racist software. <laughs> yeah, well, fair, like fair play, right? Right. right? Like this actually doesn't match their their corporate mandate either. But, you know, I always go back to, well, did, th it's amazing that the researcher at MIT, you know, flushed this out and was able to shed light on this issue. What's a bigger issue for me is that they didn't do that before they started using the tools. So, you know, 
But this is, I mean, that, it, that, it'll go back to kind of, you know, what level of responsibility, yeah. um, you know, and it, and that's not to discount the technology itself. Well, here's that the thing. can be so valuable. Here's the thing. Tech is neutral, right? Fundamentally, yeah. it's supposed to be neutral. Now, I'll, I'll say this is probably a caveat when it comes down to artificial intelligence. It ain't neutral. But in general, tech is neutral. It's the application of it. It's the deployment that has shades of gray. And that's where we start to get into, is it ethical? Is it moral? This, does this match um, uh, purpose? And, and are there legal constraints around it? And does it meet policy? Does it actually spirit of the law versus letter of the law and the delta between the two? That is the problem. And I don't think we're having the conversation enough around what ethical application is of technology and looking at the far-reaching outcome. Because we're having, we are pressed to have a commercial angle and it's a perpetual commercial pressure to produce some sort of revenue. And whether or not that is ethically gained with a positive outcome or at least a limited harm outcome for the parties involved long-term is almost forgotten because of short-term gain pressure. And that's the biggest thing is that we have, it, it's, it's, I think that's the biggest trigger is that why wouldn't we get it to market before IBM? Let's actually run this and let's be down because we got to get to market first. And I don't discount that as a business decision, but I absolutely discount that as a long-term viability business decision precisely because you've just gone and messed it all up. You know, to me, though, how different is that than, like, the Theranos problem and Walgreens needing to get the, the Theranos clinics to market before CVS or Albertsons? This is or, precisely it, right? Or, this is or, exactly or it. Or whoever it was. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, without, um, without doing the level of due diligence that everyone would have very much expected. So in the Theranos case, you know, it was only people's, you know, health and blood work and, you know, uh, and, you know. Yeah, they're li their lives. Their lives. It's just, right? it was just their, their lives. lives. But, you know, you talk about a situation like that, uh, that I just referred to about the use of facial recognition software powered by AI and law enforcement, and you're only talking about people's liberty. Well, no, but you know? fundamentally, but let's just be honest, right? If we, if we boil it down to its basic, it's about... It's about a human's experience. It's about a human's ability to live their fullest life or to live a life that is that has enough freedom and and uh, free will that they can exercise that. And it's not it's not hampered and it is not taken away or diminished for reasons without well for no reason for no cause whatsoever except a commercial angle which is precisely one of the problems i don't rail against capitalism even though it sounds like it right now i think capitalism is amazing however it has actually been it's been tainted and it's been tainted by this notion that we're we have to give our shareholders rather than our customers the most benefit and we'll we'll benefit we'll make sure that we deliver to our shareholders before we actually determine what the benefit is to end to the end customer and the amount of harm that we actually do, be it economic, environmental, uh, health, financial, whatever the impact is that happens to be negative, we do that and we're okay with running that risk as long as we meet our shareholder demands and, and, and that of what the market demands of us or what perception for growth is. That's where I think we've gone wrong. So let's, let's play an interesting game. Uh, most egregious example of algorithmic bias that's played out in real life um, that, you, that, you, that, you, that you personally have, have seen? 
I kind of want to go back to the Wells Fargo mortgage uh, scandal of what, 2018, 2017? There's plenty, plenty to unpack there. Let's, let's, let's go do this, back. But let's go back. But let's, let's, let's just be honest. How many people um, were sold bad mortgages and sold mortgages, not bad necessarily in terms that they got a house, but they paid an, a premium based on skin color or based on zip code and had nothing to do with their actual risk profile. How exploitative is that, right? Just so, uh, and also the incentive structure for the sales end of that arm that they were told to sell it at any cost, any price without actually being fair and actually having an accurate risk profile and go ahead and adjust those numbers and points on the, on the base in order to meet your quota. And it's all right if they happen to be Latino or if they happen to be black or they happen to be Asian and they live on a certain side of you know, town. And that, I think, is fundamentally disrespectful to the notion of fair credit and fair access to credit. And it goes, that's algorithmic bias. That's part of it. It was, it was fueled by that sort of data set. We're making assumptions about how someone's behavior is going to, to play out and their ability to pay back and their intent and also their transactional history that proves that they do have a history of repayment and their probability of default is not what we would think it is based on where they live and their skin color. It doesn't map. So it's so interesting you say that. I could talk for hours and hours about uh, the quality of data that goes into you know, a financial institution's underwriting process and the value or lack of value regarding credit bureau data, at least you know, as we're talking about in the U.S. Yep. Well, that, that exists across the board, right? I think that exists for every single market. And the problem is, is if you're not part of the majority of that particular market or those in, in the positions of being able to determine policy and practice, and you don't match, you're not like them, and there's no homogeneity, uh, it's all homogeneous, yes. and, and you're not, you know, this is actually a heterogeneous market, there's a big problem. And that's one of the things, that's the, that's the inherent human organic risk when it comes to data science and structuring. And it's, again, the organic risk that comes down to bias. And it's pre-existing bias. That's actually, that's one of, and when we're talking about algorithms, it's one of the three types I, I of algorithm bias. I was just about bias. to say, I think it's, it's, probably, it's probably the perfect um, illustration of uh, that parallel problem that we started off talking about. You've got the problem with the algorithm, but then you also have the problem with the data set that was going that was going into it. It was a total. It was a total twofer. It was doomed. (laughs) It was doomed. Right. Yeah. It was damned if you do and damned if you don't kind of situation. Right. So I mean, what do we what do we do about the data? Right. Because the data, you know, as you personally experience, the data that's there and available to use for training is what it is to a certain degree, Um, and if it's inherently flawed or the quantity of it is so skewed, like, is it hopeless? Like, how do we fix no, no, that well, like, problem? So lack of data is one problem. Yes, that's fair. Like, when we're talking about image recognition, lack of, uh, lack of variety and diversity of images for faces that are representative of everything that's on the planet, it ain't there. Yeah, that's a problem. I think uh, when it comes down to those who are in the position to actually think, Already get the data and curate it and pull it together. Go the extra mile, mate. Like, just go the extra mile. Recognize that if you have a shoddy and limited data set, then you're going to have a shoddy and limited output. So, part of it is take an extra step. The other is that we, as a market, can start demanding this from those 
who are publishing or curating or offering sort of these database sets, like we can actually demand that the market do better. So it's a supply and demand question, right? Actually shout on the demand side and maybe the supply will actually meet need. The other thing is you got to think about all those different points that you're missing out when you have limited experience in the team that's doing this team of data scientists sitting around a table who are all educated from similar institutions that all have a similar background. Um, they probably have similar life experiences because they're either the same gender or the same ethnic background, um, speak the same language, uh, have the same references in entertainment and literature and culture. You're going to have an incredibly limited and narrow scope and they're not going to be challenged. And that's one of the things that diversity of team and people working on it bring to it is that you're actually an insurance policy because someone can actually can challenge an assumption, can challenge that experience, can say you haven't thought about this. It's the notion of designing, designing a product and thinking it's going to apply to everybody and it's going to be just fine, but you've forgotten that maybe you're designing a product that widows would use, and that's a very different experience than a widower or you're looking, at, um, you're looking at a single person versus a family unit making these decisions and using this product. And let's be honest, we use things differently and for different purpose. And if you don't understand that sort of thing, if you're not actually being challenged of like, mate, you're a guy, I'm a gal, you are black, I'm, I'm, I'm Asian, I'm, or I'm white, or I'm Native American, and that's not how it works. That's not, that's not how it works for me. That's not the way I got to consider this. I've got to consider that. Same principle of like walking home in a, you know, a dark alley or walking sure. home from public transport to the house, right? What do you think about when you, when you walk home? I think about making sure I got my keys in my hand, that I know, how to, I know how to fight back. My headphones are not on. No I'm dark corners. Aware, dark corners. And I know who's shuffling up behind me and I'm listening to footsteps. When I ask my guy friends, what do they think about? They're like, whatever I was doing that night and what do I want to do when I get home? Is there beer in the fridge or not? Right. And how many times I've talked to fathers who were like, I only started thinking about my, you know, women's safety when my daughter came around to an age where she was coming home late at night and her safety and what she needs to do. And I'm like, yeah, fundamentally different experiences. So are you designing something without taking into that, into, into consideration those contexts? It's simple as that. And when you don't do that, when you don't have someone saying, that's not how it is for me or for my friends, and yet this is what you're thinking everybody's going to behave like or everybody's going to experience, then, you know, insurance policy 101 is having somebody challenge that and debate you about it. So we're not, we're not seeing that at scale. And I think that's one of the critical things. It's super easy. It's, it's a strategy that's incredibly proactive and you can do it immediately is get different people with different experiences and, you know, neural diversity as well around the table, challenging the assumptions around how you structure and how you categorize and how you value aspects of data. So I think for me as well, and I, you know, I love your Wells Fargo example because I go back to if you, uh, I don't know, I think it was early August that the CFPB actually gave an update on a no action letter that they had issued to um, an alternative data company who was running some scenarios about the use of alternative data to give access to credit for the un- and underbanked. And 
to see what impact it had. Uh, and part of their no action letter agreement was that they had to report back uh, to the Bureau. So to, to make sure that it was an iterative learning process, uh, because, you know, if we are able to say, you know what, these traditional data sources, particularly for financial institutions that have been uh, so reliant and in a lot of ways like crippled by their uh, dependence on this one, you know, Bible of data regarding, you know, consumers, you know, interest in, willingness to, uh, and capability of repaying, fundamentally challenging the notion of that. Um, you know, the credit bureau system has been historically, like, manipulated in lots of different ways, um, and it's, it's, it's not working, right? It's not working anymore. When this many people don't have access to credit products, even though they've been, you know, paying their rent responsibly for 20 years, just because they don't have a history of mortgage payment doesn't mean that they are a riskier bet because they actually have a better payment history than maybe someone who, you know, ended up having to, to short sell, you know, five years ago and they're just waiting two more years for that to fall off their credit bureau report, right? So the beauty uh, of this particular initiative, right, is we saw that like, oh, holy smokes, this is actually working. More people are getting access to credit. More people are getting um, uh, more favorable rates uh, on their yeah. credit. Um, and it's because we're we're, we're changing the focus on and towards non-traditional data and just, you but know. It's not just financial data. It's actually re-examining the risk models for traditional transactional data. We're already sitting on data sets that we're not extracting the full value from. We're not actually getting the full picture. And you can run transactional data and use whatever that, I mean, we're talking payment data, right? It's not necessarily rent data or, or what's been reported to the credit bureau. It's what your banking life looks like that has a that informs us better, informs risk model better on probability of default. And it's just extracting the value of the current data, which means structuring it slightly differently and adding in or subtracting parts that are irrelevant or correlative, right? It's playing with what we already have. We don't need no alternative data, so to speak, which has an advantage. Don't discount that. Sure. But we don't even need it. We're just starting to understand how we can better leverage existing transactional data, but understanding the credit side more fairly and understanding real risk models that have nothing to do with what are sitting on actuarial tables that are based on assumptions from 25, 50, 100 right. years ago. So in, in this situation, right, it's not data that's that a financial institution isn't already collecting exactly. about you. Yeah. They have it about you, exactly. but that's not what they're modeling off of, right? Exactly. They know what your education history is. They know what your employment history is. But you they're have, not modeling it. You have to fill it out when you're filling out your credit applications. All but, your that's, no, but that's not what underwriting is focused there. Exactly. The, rate, the but, rates on. But the funny thing is, and we started, so we're looking at open banking and now we're looking at open finance. And open finance is the credit side of the situation, right? Right. Um, from payments to credit. And... That's what's being that's what's interesting is now we're getting a lot more attention on what exists for a data set that we can use and how do we use it differently, and how do we extend better and fair financial credit or access to credit, and let's be honest we're actually doing this because there's an economic economic motive behind it. It's more market, it's bigger market, it's economic growth, it's putting more money into the system, it's creating money and creating value when we start to include more people in the system and give them access to credit. 
And oh, by the way, it also happens to be the right thing to do. Yeah, like just because there's a wonderful moral argument for it, I don't care where you fall on that moral question. It's got a business driver behind it. Certainly. You know, and if that's all you're willing to listen to, then listen to the business driver for doing this differently and doing this in a right and ethical way. So the the report that the CFPB issued reporting back on uh, the upstarts research um, after the no action letter was issued, what I thought was fascinating is that near prime consumers with FICO scores generally of 620 to 660 were approved approximately twice as frequently. Yep. Um, yep. And as, that's just it, right? As they were previously I mean, based, so based on based on a traditional credit model. Right. Um, and then I think it was applicants under the age of 25 who have very limited credit history um, were 32% more likely to be approved. And then consumers with incomes under $50,000 were 13% more likely to be approved. And it wasn't just about access. It was about both access and fair lending. What I think will be the really fascinating follow-up is uh, once these um, the debt that gets issued based on some of uh, these alternative underwriting processes, examining the payment rehistory on those to make sure that it's actually working all the way through. So like the, the access to it and getting approved and you know, accessing credit, very, very critical part, but a lot of that research will fall flat on its face if the default if the default rate is statistically flipped on its head as right. well. Well, it has to be if it's statistically significant, right? Correct. Right. Yes. Well, but I mean, that's the point is we're playing with it. But anything that we take to market has inherent risk. So there is inherent risk that your probability of default will not match what your new assessment of credit risk actually is using alternative structured data or alternative uh, data to model. On the other hand, it's hardly a risk when you look at the increase in volume of lending in your portfolio. So there's still an upside irrespective of whether or not the long-term trend and probability of default happens to be a little skewed from the initial modeling now. There's still a revenue stream and there is still value and wealth creation out of that. Even if we, if we, even it's one or two points off of standard deviation that we guessed, I don't care. You're still making profit off of it. You're going to have risk associated with it, and that's risk of actually market. That's, that's that's taking a new product to market. That's standard. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to change because it certainly is far from good right now. So, summing up our our kind of thoughts and discussion about this particular issue. Um, we know where the parallel problem is, um, and it's permeated in the application of AI in lots of highly regulated industries. We talked about law enforcement. We talked about financial services. Um, so solutions, right? We already talked about diversifying um, the teams that are building the models, right? Um, getting more people of color, getting more gender diversity, um, and making sure that those teams are thinking about experiences from all angles, not just the ones that they're comfy with. And then we've got the data problem and looking at the data that we already have and are collecting and saying, what can we do better with this and getting really uncomfortable, I think. It's definitely part of it. Getting really uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's, I think that we have to remember that algorithms and the assumptions around them, um, 
also have three tracks of bias. One is that pre-existing because it's, you know, here we go. This is what we think is going to happen. And we build the algorithm with that assumption baked in. There's technical bias, which is the limitations of the technology to actually do the crunch that system overload. It's technical. It's limitation of the tech itself. And there's another one called emergent bias. And emergent bias is really interesting because it does, it means the algorithm doesn't take into consideration natural changes, either from a business model change or a new regulation or a new law or even a new trend or a social meme. And it doesn't have capacity to analyze or to consider that. So as things change, as the world changes, the algorithms also have to be updated. So I think the other branch of that is a continual and constant quality assurance review for that kind of emergent bias. Technical will arise, we'll see it, we'll get some, we'll get some indication of it. And pre-existing, okay, fine, if we assume that's the case, then having different people work on it, challenge it, refine it, that's kind of a nice insurance policy. But the other insurance policy is a consistent review that you need to be going back and having that quant review and that, that quality assurance review of the emergent component. Are we taking into consideration things that are changing? Are we making micro calculations that are compounding at each step, especially when it's machine learning? Because machine learning is actually done with micro calculation and it triggers the next action. And once you've done that and you're teaching the machine to do it, unpicking that single microcalculation in a chain of 1,500 or 15,000 or 15 million calculations, major pain in the ass. So, so uh, I'm reminded of uh, a quote of yours, I think, from a presentation that you gave earlier today that learning is hard, but unlearning's a whole lot harder. <laughs> so there you and go. that is true for the machines as well. <laughs> The machines don't even know how to unlearn. Right. So, yeah, I mean, unless you want to start retraining it with a different data set and challenging it, like, make sure you've got an unlearning mechanism in how you're managing those algorithms. And that if you're, if you're buying solutions that have that, that the vendor themselves has sort of a, a mechanism in place for review. And just remember that every single one of those decisions, every single time that algorithm is run, it's compounding. It's becoming... I mean, it's like it's like archaeology. Like when you start digging, you start seeing different layers, and there's that geological strata of stuff that you have to dig underneath, and you finally eventually get to something. But you see, all of those things are compounded. They all they all start to to I don't know. They turn to rock, and it's it's like it's trying to blast through rock. You don't want that sort of thing. You want to have a review mechanism. You want to make sure that it's constantly up to snuff, and that Anytime something changes that has a fundamental impact on your business, be it market, be it um, be it social, be it regulation policy, that there is a way that you can you can at least trigger a review so that you're capable of limiting how much bias is baked in, emergent bias is baked in before you get too far down the road and you're starting to see bad decision making or bad automated processes that limit your ability to reach certain market, to deliver your product or to do it fairly and you're under scrutiny. So like, yeah, 
QA for emergent bias review sessions on a very regular basis is another way of combating it. Um, and you know, and then if you don't do that, I'm sure the plaintiff's bar in the United States will step in and do it for you. And then you'll, and then you'll just have to be answering those questions in a deposition instead of in your quality assurance meetings within your own organization. Quick fix, figure out how to unlearn, right? (laughs) Right. Figure out how to unlearn. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. And, uh, I thought this was awesome. Uh, you know, it's my favorite subject. So thank you. It's a total indulgence. I appreciate it. So it's interesting because I feel like it touches on all of my nerdy, nerdy pillars, right? Like I get to talk about the law and I get to talk about tech and then I get to talk about uh, diversity and issues. philosophy. Like this is, a, this is, this actually, how we think is how we live and we manifest that reality. I'm not getting all esoteric and spiritual on you, but seriously, how we think shapes everything that we build. And we have to start thinking differently about these things. Because if we don't, we're going to be in a world of hurt. And each one of us will actually experience a diminished quality of life across the board. Because when you suffer, I eventually suffer as well. And my business suffers. And my ability to commercialize, my ability to support my community and my team suffers. So frankly, if I want to stay in business, I have a moral obligation to myself, to my shareholders, to my employees, and to my customers to do this right. All right. You heard it, everyone who is either investing in or developing AI technology. You have to do this right because Gala and I do not want to have diminished quality of life. Yeah, frankly, and I hunt you down if that happens. Trust you me. We're taking this very personally <laughs> right now. Um, well, you know, thank you again. We were recording uh, live here in London, and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And it's awesome that you're on this side of the pond. Yay! Woo! All right. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.